Good morning to everyone and a very warm welcome to you all and a special welcome again if you're joining us as a visitor. For the last uh, few Sunday mornings in our sermons, we've been looking at God in the Psalms, the picture of God that we get in the Psalms. And today I want us to continue that by looking at the picture of God as a judge. What do the Psalms say about God as judge? And I want to start with a simple story. A little girl is drawing a picture and her mummy says to her, what are you drawing? And the little girl says, I'm drawing a picture of God. Ah, says her mother, but nobody knows what God is like. And the little girl replies very quickly, they will do when I've finished. It's a silly little story, but it's one I've always liked because it um, poses a very important question, a very significant question. What is God like? And it's a question that faces us, all of us, all the days of our life. And so much depends upon our response to the question. Now, we're living in unusual times. The days of the coronavirus pandemic and lockdown have, for instance, thrown up statistics of so many more people coming online to uh, share church services and church activities. And there are reports of many more people turning to God in prayer. So the question, what is God like, is one that comes to us today with particular importance and particular urgency. It's a very good question. We started by answering it with the picture of God as compassionate and gracious. We might say he is a kind God, a God we see in his loving kindness towards us and supremely, of course, in Jesus Christ. And that's a lovely picture of him. We then turn to look at God as a God of power. He is almighty. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is in charge. With him, nothing is impossible. And then last week, we looked at a third picture. God as faithful. God reveals himself to us as supremely faithful in his faithfulness. We see that faithfulness to us in his promises. We see it in the generosity that he shows towards us. And of course, he is faithful to himself, to what he is. And it was a lovely picture and we shared together the very uh, exciting and enjoyable compilation on Zoom of a number of our own members at Magdalen Road Church singing a setting of the 23rd Psalm, setting by Stuart Townend. And it contains the uh, wonderful uh, line, the chorus, and I will trust in you. And fourthly today we come to the picture of God as judge. And I want to deal with it in this way. I want us to look at what the Psalms say about God as judge. Then I want to look at one Psalm in particular, the 51st Psalm, and although it's a Psalm of confession, it's nonetheless a Psalm that speaks to us very much about God as judge. And then um, to finish with, I want us to look at something in the New Testament of where Jesus Christ is 
shown to us and revealed to us as our judge. And I want to uh, suggest the comfort and the good hope that we can draw uh, from that. So what do the Psalms say? They say much about um, God as judge. Many of them make references to God as a judge. And in this, they are in the, uh, consistent in the, in the context of the Old Testament, where there are many different statements of God as judge. For example, at the beginning of the story in the book of Genesis, there is a somewhat strange incident when Abraham, the great patriarch, pleads with or intercedes with the very evil city of Sodom. Um, he intercedes with God. He pleads with God to save the city. And he asks God that if there are um, righteous and innocent people in the city, surely he, he won't destroy it. And he starts at the level of 50, and he goes down 45, 40, 30, 20, and then finally 10 people, and, and God says, no, he won't destroy the city if there are 10 righteous and innocent people there. Um, and in the course of this uh, intercession, Abraham says, surely the judge of all the earth will do right. The judge of all the earth will do right. God will do the right thing over Sodom. In the event, of course, there are not even 10 righteous and the city is destroyed. But that's one place where God is seen as judge. Another one, and there are many examples I could take, but another one is from the, from the story of Job. And the story of Job is of a man who suffers terribly and in so many different ways and sees himself as innocent and he stands before God and pleads his innocence before God. And he uses a wonderful um, phrase. He says, though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. So again, in the book of Job, we see the picture of God as judge. But let's look now at what the Psalms say about God as judge. And there are many Psalms that make many references. Just let me take a few. Psalm 6. God is a righteous judge. Psalm 8. He will judge the world in righteousness. Psalm 82. Rise up, O God, judge the earth. Psalm 96. He will judge the world in righteousness. Now, what are we to make of all these statements of God as judge? Well, God is a judge, and he is a righteous judge. He presides, as it were, over those who are brought before him for judgment, and he passes judgment. But it is a righteous judgment. It's not arbitrary. It's not fickle. It's not volatile in some sense or partial. God is a righteous judge. Let's look at Psalm 89. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. And that's good. That's wonderfully good. The foundation of God's throne, righteousness and justice, very much the same thing. But justice is there right at the very heart of the revelation of God as a judge. When we come to God 
as a judge, he judges rightly. He judges justly. He judges fairly. And we are not to think of the justice of God as some kind of external standard to which we can bring God and his actions and, and, and make a, a, an opinion for ourselves on whether he is just. His justice is inherent to himself. He is justice. And that's what he's like. Now this God who judges us, uh, judges us individually and directly and personally. We all stand before him and he is our own judge and we have to come to terms with that. But there's also a very strong sense, not just of uh, dealing with God's justice on an individual basis, but on a community basis. God's justice has something to say about the community and has something to say about the world. The gospel is public truth, you could put it like that, and I certainly believe that very strongly. In the teaching of Jesus, so many of his parables, one of the dominant themes is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And um, we in our prayer of the Lord's Prayer pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the justice that we see in God is a justice that we want to see across our world, in our community, across the face of the earth. And we are to strive for that. It is part of the work and mission of the church to reflect and to establish uh, the justice in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ across the face of the earth. Let me give you just two examples. The first one is the whole issue that surrounds poverty. And I, and I'm sure you'll all agree with me, that in a rich country, which Britain is, it is really appalling that there are still so many people who live in serious poverty. And you can see that by the huge growth in the use of food banks over these past weeks and months. People's poverty is such that they are unable to afford the food they need and they are driven to seek food from the food banks. I was much taken with an interview on the radio last week of a father with two children and he was saying that um, in order for him to put uh, food on the table uh, for these uh, children there were some days when he himself had to go without. And that's not just and it doesn't reflect the justice of God, the, the, the justice that we in the church are to strive for as we seek the kingdom uh, here on earth. Another example would be all the issues that surround inequality. And there are so many different aspects of it. One that we're much taken up with at the moment is the whole question of racial inequality. But inequality is something that offends God's justice and is not part of God's plan and purposes for us. I've been reading, and I do commend it to you if you're looking for a serious read, but I've been reading Tom Holland's Dominion. Tom Holland is a serious author, a very fine scholar and historian. He writes very well, it's very easy to read, and this is a wonderful work, Dominion, the thesis of which is that the Christian faith Christianity has in many ways dominated 
the development of the world over the last 2,000 years in so many different ways, so many different facets. And for example, to the uh, classical world, the world of Rome, the world of Greece into which the Christian church was born and started to grow, the church brought the whole concept of equality for men and women, that men and women are equal in God's sight. They're made in his image. They're made in his likeness. They are equally precious and sacred and should be treated in that way. And that was a wholly novel idea and concept until the church came along with it. But how important it is, and of course, for Christians, we know that the invitation from Jesus Christ to come to him is one that is given to all and those who respond to the invitation and come to Christ and are in Christ, uh, we are indeed profoundly equal. And there again, there are so much to say about issues of justice uh, that surround the, the, the concept of, of, of inequality. Now, I want to go on and say that God as judge in the Psalms we see the, the sinfulness of, of, of humanity, the sinfulness of man as provoking God to anger and to wrath. In Psalm 90, we are consumed by your wrath and terrified by your indignation. And it's the picture that we get in the Psalms. God as judge, he is provoked to anger and to wrath and to indignation by human sinfulness. And I think we can understand something of that because we too, I'm sure, when we see something that seems grossly unfair or unjust or wrong, we can be provoked uh, to anger and righteously so. There is, a, there is a righteous anger. But human sinfulness provokes God to righteous anger and to wrath. And it falls in two ways. It falls upon his enemies. The Psalms are full of the enemies of God and how um, that provokes his anger and his wrath. But his anger also falls upon his own people, upon his own followers in their sinfulness and in their turning away from him and in, in, in their disobedience. And we find that particularly in one story, the story of King David. And we see it uh, reflected very much in one of the Psalms, in Psalm uh, 51. And I want us to turn now and to look at that psalm. And if you have a Bible, then do, do please do please open it. I'm going to make one or two references. It's a famous psalm, one of the most famous of the psalms. And if, like me, you sometimes listen to classic FM, then you'll know that pretty well once a day at least, they play the famous setting of the composer Allegri uh, of... Um, uh, Alighieri of of the uh, of the setting of Miserere, the setting, the 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 choral setting of the fifty first psalm, and it's a a magnificent and a very moving piece of music. And the setting for this psalm, which is essentially a confession, although we do learn much about God as judge from it, um, the setting is the story of King David and Bathsheba, and it's one of the more salacious stories in the Old Testament. King David is in his palace and he looks out of his window one day and he sees a woman bathing and she's very beautiful and this is Bathsheba and he summons her to his 
palace and he seduces her and she becomes pregnant. And David discovers that Bathsheba is married and she's married to a man called Uriah, who is one of David's officers or one of uh, David's um, soldiers uh, fighting out in the field. And um, to cut a quite long story short, David arranges for those who are fighting with Uriah to fall back from the enemy and to leave Uriah exposed so that he can be killed. And this is just what happens. Uriah is killed and to the grievous sin of adultery. Uh, David adds the grievous sin of murder. But the story, and you'll find the story in the second book of Samuel at chapters 11 and 12, um, we're told in the story that this thing displeased the Lord. God is angry. And through the prophet Nathan, uh, God, the Lord, confronts David with what he's done. And when David sees the, uh, the, the horrendous sin that he has committed, he makes a confession. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And uh, he sees God as his judge. And he pours out before him the confession which we know of as the uh, 51st Psalm. Two things I want to say about this. First of all, in reading the psalm, we see that sin is serious. Sin is real and sin is serious. It's never trivial. It's never to be taken lightly. And we hear this in the words of David in the opening verses of the psalm. From Psalm 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. David has grievously sinned and sinned against God and dishonoured God, as well as, of course, Bathsheba and Uriah. And we know that none of us does good. All of us, in some sense or another, are sinners. We have that lovely verse in Psalm 14, where we're told there is no one who does good, not even one. And we must take our sin with all due seriousness. It is no trivial matter. I've sometimes been helped with a little picture of the examination where the pass mark is 100%. And so if you score 35%, well, you've not done very well. But if you've scored 65%, which would be enough to get through a lot of exams, you've still failed. But even if you scored 95 or 99%, which would get you a first-class degree and a commendation and a distinction. But in God's examination, you still fail. We fail when we do not reach 100%, and none of us reach 100%. We sin, and we provoke God rightly and justly to anger, because he is a holy, and he is a just, and he is a pure, and he is a righteous 
and he is a perfect judge. The words of the prophet Habakkuk, your eyes are too pure to look upon evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. And that is so. So God is angry at our human sinfulness. But the second thing I want to say is that there is mercy. And we see that, G uh, that uh, David trusts in and uh, depends upon the mercy of God as he comes to him in confession. Listen to verses 1 and 2 again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. On to verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Yes, God is angry. God is a God who judges and passes judgment, but he is also a God of mercy and a God of grace. And here again, those words, we looked at them a couple of weeks ago from Psalm 103, from verse 7. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. David knew from his experience of God that God is a God of mercy. He could turn to God and find a God who upon his repentance will receive him with mercy, with grace and with forgiveness. And so he also will receive us. So we find God as a God of righteous judgment, a righteous judge in the Psalms, and we can pick up very particularly the features of that in Psalm 51. I want to turn now to the New Testament and to Jesus, because we know what David did not know. We know that in Jesus Christ, we have a saviour, a saviour who is the means of rescue and salvation and forgiveness and new life uh, brought to us by our loving God. There's a sense in the Old Testament that the judge is not just one who judges um, cases before him in a kind of narrow legal sense. Uh, the Old Testament has very much the view of the judge as a deliverer or as a rescuer. The book of Judges is all about those who deliver and who rescue God's people. And we see in Jesus, one who comes to rescue and to deliver us. Now, there are various points in the New Testament where clearly Jesus is described as judge. Pick it up in Matthew's Gospel. For the Son of Man is going to come to his, in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Pick it up in John's Gospel. The Father has entrusted all judgment to the Son. He has given him authority to judge because he is the Son. 
And then Paul, in his wonderful sermon to the Athenians, we find that in Acts chapter 17, makes this very explicit statement. God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And so from these statements and from other statements, the Apostles' Creed, which is a creed and confession that binds so many Christians together, it says this, He, Jesus, will judge the living and the dead. Jesus is to be our judge. And the New Testament has many instances that refer to the day of judgment, the day when Christ will return again and he will judge us. And that is a serious, serious matter. We face, all of us, a day of judgment, all of us without exception, when everything we've said and everything that we've done and everything that we have been will be brought into the open before Jesus Christ and he will judge and he will judge justly. The faithful will be saved, the unbelieving will be condemned. And this idea of the day of judgment gripped the imagination and has gripped the imagination of Christians down the centuries. There are many different depictions of it. Think of Michelangelo's decoration in the Sistine Chapel of the Day of Judgment. But one that comes to mind, and I want to draw to an end with this, one that comes to mind is in Chaldon Church in Surrey. When I was a little boy, I suppose about 10 or 11, my father bought a car. And not many people had cars, but we were able to, to get a car and we went out at the weekend on expeditions and we made one expedition to Chaldon Church, which, as I say, is near Coulsdon in Surrey, which is where we lived. And in that church, when it was being restored in the later part of the 19th century, they discovered an, a medieval wall painting that went back to the year 1200. It's a very old church, and they discovered that this painting had been <coughs> put up on the wall of the church um, about 1200, 800 years ago. And it's a, a picture of the Day of Judgment. And it's a very dramatic picture, and it's very graphic, and it really made a big impression on me as a little boy. In the middle of the picture there is a, a cloud that, as it were, uh, cuts the picture in half, and above the cloud is heaven. And the angel Michael, the archangel Michael, is, is judging uh, the souls of, of those uh, who have come before him, and some go on up to Christ and are received by Christ and saved, and others go down below the cloud uh, into, into hell, because below the cloud there is a most dramatic picture of hell with demons and devils and all the horrors of hell and people being tortured. In the middle of the picture, going up the whole picture, is a ladder, and you see men and women on the ladder seeking heaven, which some find or, or, or are received into, and others are brought back down uh, to hell. A most dramatic picture. And I sometimes think of the congregations that have sat in that church. They perhaps didn't understand much of the service, but they were able to look at the picture. And they saw in the picture that there is a choice. There is a choice. There are the horrors of hell, or there is the paradise uh, of heaven with Jesus. And the good news, 
the good news, my friends, is that Jesus saves. Jesus has done all that's necessary for us to be received uh, into heaven. It's a gift of grace to us that's received by faith. We can do nothing. There are no good works. There's no worth. There's no merit in us. It's all been done by Jesus Christ, by the judge himself who takes upon himself our judgment, our, our condemnation, and we are set free. We go free. We are free to go out and to serve in the name of Jesus Christ, to serve him and to serve others. So in the Psalms, God comes to us as a judge and we see Jesus as our judge. We face a day of judgment. May that bring us to him in all sincerity and in all earnestness and with all urgency to cast ourselves upon him and to trust him and to find that he is indeed our saviour, our Lord and our friend. And if we believe that, as I believe that, and so many of us believe that, if we believe that, let's go out and live accordingly. Amen. Let us pray. God and Father, lay this glorious truth in our hearts and prepare us by your Holy Spirit to serve you, knowing that through Jesus Christ we have been saved from our sins and gloriously given new life in which to serve him and to serve him faithfully. Hear us now in his name and for his sake. Amen.